Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm doing the uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians in my head, trying to find it here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And this week, as I'm meditating on the text, on our passage this week, I decided again that this is the most important passage of Scripture that there is. Um, so I'm, I'm backtracking on my last week. It was the most important passage. So every week is the most important passage of Scripture as we start to dig into it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a text this morning that can be a little sticky. We come to a text this morning that... Um, causes us to reflect upon our hearts, causes us to ask hard questions about um, the posture of our hearts that demands of us a kind of racial and ethnic unity that is not natural. Um, it demands of us a kind of selflessness and love towards people who don't look like us, sound like us, that's not not normal for us. Um, so, Lord, we ask that you would drive us to a deeper experience with your Holy Spirit, that you would you would bring us to a deeper place of humility, a deeper place of love and servanthood, that you would cause our hearts to break for every people group across the face of the earth, and that you would rid us totally and holistically, rid us of any prejudice, God. Rid us of any bigotry, rid us of any postures in our hearts that are counterintuitive to your gospel. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Count uh, Zinzendorf, his name was Count Zinzendorf, was the bishop of the Moravian Church um, in the 1600s. He actually wasn't a vampire. I know that that was a thought that you had. My brother was a vampire. Um, and the only problem was that every time he, he bit me daily, but I never was allowed to bite back. So there was some kind of deficiency. He's some, some kind of deficient vampire. Count Zinzendorf was a bishop of the Moravian Church, and he started the one of the first foreign Protestant missionary sending groups. Um, he supported the first two missionaries. Their names were uh, Dober and Nitschmann. Um, they were German. Those are German names. And they were sent to um, a couple Danish islands off of the West Indies. And the story goes like this. The story is that, you probably heard this before, that... Um, there were these two islands that were filled with slaves, African slaves, um, and the owner of the islands and the owner of the slaves there would not allow any missionaries to come to the island. And so these two young men, um, Dober and Nitschman, the story goes, decided that in order to evangelize this community of slaves in the West Indies, the only way to get there would be to sell themselves into slavery. And so the story goes that they sold themselves into slavery, became slaves in order to see a group of African American slaves come to know the glory and the majesty and the great goodness of Jesus. And there was this kind of selfish thing. And these two guys on their ship, when they sailed away, they were the first two to, um, to to start that Moravian mantra, they, they shouted at the crowds, uh, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And so they were willing to sell themselves into slavery so that the, the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering. And in order, and, and this is kind of profound to think of, imagine two Germans selling themselves in order to reach some Africans in the West Indies. It's so counter what would happen in Germany in the early 20th century, like a complete flip. 
Now, historians do what historians do, and they say that this story may be embellished a little. Apparently, they can ruin a good story for the sake of historical accuracy. Um, whatever. Um, so uh, what the historians are saying today is that this, the, this story is embellished a little, and that actually they said that they would be willing to be sold as slaves, but they weren't actually sold as slaves. They tried that pattern, um, but it didn't work, and they got to the island anyway. We know that they weren't so, sold into slavery forever because one of them would go on to work with John Wesley in his later years um, to do some missionary work. But still profound, still a profound willingness to sell yourself into slavery for the sake of another people group. Now that's not natural. Like everything in our, in our natural makeup wants to be around people who look like us, sound like us, have grown up with a, um, a socioeconomic background that's like ours. And it's not normal to want to leave your family, leave the food that you love, leave the cities that you grew up in, in order to, to go live amongst slaves, work amongst slaves, experience the hardship of slavery in order to bless another people. That's not natural, but it is gospel. That's not natural, but that's the kind of gospel love, the gospel unity that you're called to. And so our text today, um, I have like so much more notes than I need, so I'm trying to skim a little bit. But our, our text today, it, it teaches us something profound. And so we know from like studying Genesis that all people, according to the scripture, every person that walks the earth has value, has an innate value because the image of God is stamped on every color, every type, every gender, that the image of God is on every man. So we know that that's established. And then we know from the life of Jesus through the revelation that, that the gospel is to all nations, Matthew 28, the staple, the mantra of the gospel, that you should preach this gospel to all nations. So we know that that we should preach the gospel to every people group. But when we come to Ephesians 2, it challenges us to go even a step further. It's not enough just to preach the gospel to all people groups, but we are actually called to live in unity with all people groups. So now there's a, a, a profound, pragmatic application to peace because we can't just love people across the sea and love people of different colors. We can't just love and support um, congregations that look different than us, we are now called to, demanded even by the text, that we live in unity with those people groups. So it's not enough just to love and celebrate our own culture, but we're actually called to walk in this kind of selfless, sacrificial love towards people of other cultures. And we have to find a practical and pragmatic peace even with those other people groups. And so what we have going on right now in the United States is we have multiple branches of Christianity and we're in political turmoil. Um, we have movements of people saying that there is still systemic racism. And then we have pockets of Churches that are saying, no, there's not systemic racism. And, and, and the problem is that we are called to unity. And so we are demanded of the text that we at least listen and we at least hear out people's, their stories and their ideas. And we at least, the, the problem today is that everyone wants to talk and no one wants to listen. And we're passing each other in the night. Do you know what that means? Is that we're having two totally different conversations because we're so set on being heard and not set on listening. But the gospel demands that you listen to people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, of different cultural upbringings, that you listen to the story of a young African-American who's saying that he's experienced things that aren't, that white people don't experience in our nation. And I'm not making any statements other than you. You have to listen. 
And you have to live in peace with every cultural backdrop. And we have to learn to love people even if when they have different stories and different emphases. Do you guys kind of catch what I'm saying here? I know that's like I might be stepping on some toes, but I'm, I'm just saying that if, if all you care about is being heard, you do not care about the gospel. Because the gospel is not about your political views being heard. It's about loving people, supporting people, finding unity. I'm, I'm yakking here, but let's read our text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through, I'm going to go all the way through 3, verses 6 this morning. Therefore, okay, the therefore, sorry, we're stopping already. The therefore is because last week we talked about salvation is by grace alone. You cannot be saved by your own efforts. You can only be saved by coming to, casting yourself upon the perfect work of Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, made us both one, and has broken down in his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Some translations say, in himself, one new humanity, one new existence, one new people group, one new spiritual people in the place of of fragments and fractions. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and he preached peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And just a couple verses here in chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And the mystery is this. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we're just going to do three points. I'm going to hash through this systematically, but I want you to hear me. I want you to really try to hear me because everything I'm going to say this morning should cause you to like self-reflect. And so don't hear me making any accusations. I'm not making accusations. I'm just asking the questions that the text should make you read against yourself, ask against yourself. And so I'm in the same boat. I have to read against myself. Do I really love all people groups? Am I really willing to walk in unity with every color, every type? Do I really value people even though they come from a difference. Those questions I'm having to ask against myself as well. And so the first thing that, that Paul says here is that you were brought in. Everybody say in. You were brought in by Christ. And here he tells us that Jesus accomplished the task of your inclusion. Okay, so we're back to last week. 
you come into Christ, into the, into the, the commonwealth of Israel, into the blessings of God through Jesus, not through becoming a Jewish proselyte. This is the point here. So R.C. Sproul says that the, the biggest um, heresy of the first century was this, was, was promoted by what historians call the Judaizers. And the Judaizers taught that in order to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And so it was all good and well for people to come and say that they're in Jesus. But first, they must be circumcised. And once they're circumcised, some would say, then they had to obey the full commandments of the law. And then they had to honor all of the feasts. And then they had to embrace all of Judaism. And that's the only way to really come to life. And that that idea rubbed Paul so wrongly. The, the My favorite epistle, I've told you before, is Galatians. And it's my favorite because Paul is mad the entire time. Like fiery hot. And he's fiery hot against this idea that you must leave your cultural ethnic identity and cling to another cultural ethnic identity in order to come to Christ. And Paul says that's rubbish. And so the first council is in Acts chapter 15 where the apostles come together. And they say to that idea, no, people do not have to come to Judaism in order to come to Christ. You simply come to Christ. Some scholars say that the Judaizers literally followed Paul as he planted churches and then they tried to promote this idea. So Paul is addressing this idea here, and he even makes kind of an offhanded comment, which he'll do in Philippians chapter 3 as well. Um, Really kind of funny when you start paying attention to his language. But hear him say um, in chapter 2, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, so we're talking to the Gentiles in the flesh, called, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were separated from Christ. So he offhandedly kind of blows a shot at the idea that you can come to God by merely being circumcised. That you can come to God through some outward sign. That you could come to God by some kind of, of, of work or effort. And Paul is saying, no, you cannot come to God through your own efforts. You can only come to God through coming to Christ. So it's not through circumcision of the flesh. It's not through your previous law observance. Your former life neither prohibited you from coming nor gave you access. Previous law observance is not a prerequisite to the gospel. There is no prerequisite to the gospel. Only a need for faith and repentance today. And not, here Paul, not through losing your cultural ethnic identity in order to embrace another. You are not accepted by losing your ethnicity and clinging to Jewish culture. We can learn things from Jewish culture, and we should. We can learn a lot from Jewish roots. There's this movement to um, understand the imagery that happens in the feast, like Passover. It's so... It's really helpful to study Passover, learn from Passover, see the imagery and the way in which it points to Jesus. All of the Old Covenant points to Christ, and we can find Christ there, and we should celebrate those ideas, but we never are commanded to obey those things in order to come to Christ. And so there's this slippery slope that's happening in the church right now where we're saying, let's learn from Judaism, and then some are saying, no, let's become Jews, and you can't really be a real Christian unless you become a Jew. And anyone who thinks that they're an elite Christian actually only tells me that they don't understand Christ. There's nothing in Christianity that that creates some kind of system to become an elitist. I say to become a real Christian, you must fall totally in love with the beauty and majesty of Jesus. 
And so the first point is simply that you're brought near by God. That as Gentiles, we were distant, but we have been brought near by Christ. And then the second point Paul tells us is how Christ brought us near. And so what's really fun to to watch Paul's language, because it's kind of poetic, is first he says that the blood of Christ brings you peace. And then he says, the, the, the torn flesh of Christ tears down the wall of hostility. And then he says, the cross that killed Christ, that cross will actually kill hostility itself. And so he's playing off language. The blood of Christ brought you peace. The torn flesh tears down the wall of hostility. And that cross that killed Christ would kill hostility itself. And so first, the blood of Christ brings you peace. It rids us of fear and judgment. It cleanses our conscience. Do you know what that means? That the, the blood of Christ intends to cleanse you of shame. It liberates you of judgment. It, it liberates you of being haunted by your past. I not I don't lay at bed at night totally gripped with shame from my past life because the blood of Christ has applied itself to my conscience. And I understand that I am totally clean and washed anew because there was a perfect Lamb of God who took my place. And so peace is brought to me by that blood. It also produces in us a confidence to enter fellowship with a perfect holy God. And the second thing he says is that the flesh of Christ, the torn flesh of Christ, in effect, tears down the wall of hostility. Now, scholars um, largely agree that the wall of hostility here is talking about a wall. He's using temple imagery. There was a wall outside of what was called the sanctuary. There was a wall that was a marker that Gentiles weren't allowed to pass. Um, we don't see much of this in the biblical text, but um, but Philo and um, Josephus both mention this wall. And in in 1871, archaeologists they they found a sign that like a like an engraving of the wall, which essentially said Gentiles cannot pass this wall. And so there's a physical wall that you were not allowed to cross into in order to come to the presence of God. Um, Remember, remember in Acts where Paul's accused of bringing a Greek into the temple? Do you remember that's where the Jews pull him? And that's, that's actually how he gets to Rome. Um, the whole accusation is that he brought a Greek past the wall, past the, this wall of division. Now some scholars, I, I think every comment, I mean, I probably read six or seven scholars this week. I think everyone agreed that that wall was in mind. And some, some will add on that the wall um, is also the idea that the law, that the, the, the commandments of God build a wall. And some add that idea. But largely the idea is that we were kept out by this wall. And, and Paul gives this kind of profound idea. He says that when Christ's flesh was torn, that wall was torn. When Christ's flesh was broken that wall was broken and when Christ's flesh opened up and and that spear pierced through his side and there was a gaping hole that that hole now becomes a door for you to enter into the presence of God that the torn flesh of Christ is a is an opening it's an entrance it's even an invitation that you come to the holiness and to the presence of God through what Christ has done for you and 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 yes it tears down the the observance of the law because none of us can uphold it and none of us have upheld it but Christ fully upheld fully lived out the law to perfection and he took your place took your punishment and now there is an opening for you then he says the cross of christ kills hostility itself the cross is so the so the the instrument which murdered jesus when come to in faith will murder hostility in you 
And so now the text demands of me, okay, it demands of Caleb that I carry no hostility in me towards any racial people group, towards no socioeconomic class, nothing. I carry no hostility because the cross of Christ intends to kill in me hostility. And so we are united in a common experience that the Christian church, that when you come to the cross, you come in one posture, brokenness. Everyone comes to the cross in weakness. No one comes to the cross in, in pride and in arrogance. If you come to the cross in pride and in arrogance, you haven't come to the cross at all. And so in that, in that, in that humility, man, in that brokenness, and when I come to the cross and I acknowledge that I have nothing to offer and I need everything that you have to offer, we now are unified with all people groups of the world who come to Jesus in this experience of poorness, of spirit, of brokenness, of emptiness. And so hostility, what is hostility to a poor man? What is hostility to a broken man? And how can one who's totally dependent on another walk around with arrogance and pride and, and prejudice? What is prejudice to a dead man? And so the text demands of me that hostility is killed by the cross. And the cross makes room. Again, it opens the door for all. It makes room for all people. And so we're perfectly united. And then, and then the last point here, and, and I'm going to wrap up, and we come to what's so profound in this text, and which is like, seriously, all week, I'm, I'm over here and I'm over here. And my brain is spinning as I'm trying to like, grapple with this idea. But, but the point here is that, that the Gentiles are now one with Israel and they have been brought into a new humanity that Christ intends to create one new man. That is a, one of the most profound texts in scripture. We are now one new man in Christ, one new existence. There is a new people group. There is a new spiritual DNA. There is a new com, a, a unity, a com, a common thread that runs through each and every one of us. And it's the Holy Ghost has caused us to be born again. And so while I have a different skin color than a, a next i also have the same spiritual dna running through us and that spiritual dna is so much more significant than our natural dna so john christentum um church father in the fourth century in constantinople writes that the greek does not have to become a jew rather both enter into a new condition so the greek doesn't become a Jew, nor does the Jew become a Greek, but they both enter into a new condition, a new state, a new existence. He says Christ's aim is not to bring Greek believers into being as different kinds of Jews, but to create both anew. One new man, one new humanity. And, and so I broke this down as my mind rolled into a couple things. The first is that we do have a common experience. In this room, every person that has passed, that has come to Christ, has passed from death to life. And so you have a, you have the, the most significant moment of your life is when you came to Jesus and you have that in common with people of a million different skin colors. A million different ethnic backgrounds, a million different music styles and dress styles. You have the most significant thing about you in common with people in every nation of the world today. We all have come to the conclusion that life is not life without Jesus. We have all come to, if you've really come to Christ, we've all come to the conclusion that Jesus makes life worth living. And that the beauty of Jesus is, is, is foundational 
And so I have that in common with, with people of a million different people groups. We've been born of the Holy Spirit. We all know the sound of His whisper. We all know the stillness of His presence. Although I have a completely and strange cultural upbringing to Christians in China, we both heard the stillness of the voice of the Holy Spirit. Although I even have a different cultural up- upbringing than African Americans in the United States, we've had different struggles and different trials. I don't fully understand their experience. Um, but what we do have in common is we both heard that gentle voice of the Holy Spirit. What we do have in common is we both look upon Jesus with this incredible hunger and desire and passion. And so our differences now become subject to our, to our unity, to our common experience. Next, in the one new man, in this new humanity, in the church, we all have a common spiritual DNA and um, a common identity as the bride of Christ. Timothy Keller, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers right now, pastored for years, I think 20 years in rural Virginia. And, and it was at a time, and, and still some in the South, where the idea of biracial marriages was so offensive. And so he ha- he's, he's dealing with people in his congregation, rural Virginia. They're frustrated with the idea of biracial marriages and he said he said that he started to say this to families in his church he would say to uh he would say to parents he would say would you rather have your kid marry someone of a different ethnicity or marry an unbeliever and he said they would start to stammer and he said so what you're saying to me is you care more about your child marrying a white person than you do about your child marrying a christian So you're more concerned with your grandkids having blonde hair and blue eyes than you are concerned with your grandkids knowing Jesus. And and what Timothy Keller would say in in a hostile environment, right? Like this is this is hostile in the in in the South. What Timothy Keller was saying was um, you're you you care more about your ethnic identity than you do about your spiritual identity. You are more committed to your ethnic identity than you are committed to your Christian identity. And that will, that will cause division and that will break you. And so he said that this became like a common, this is just this thing. He just started saying this. Um, and I, and I think that's a, a challenge to us. We ought to care much more. I, I have just, just let Caleb be honest for a minute. I do not care what color my grandkids are. I care about them having this word so deep in their bones. I don't care what color my grandkids are. Man, I want them to know the beauty of Jesus. I want my, I want my kids to be so full of the Holy Ghost. I want them to preach the gospel. I want them to have faith to pray for the sick. I don't care how their hair lays or what color their eyes are. And if you do, shame on you. Shame on you. So we have this spiritual identity that is so much more significant than our ethnic identity. We've all, in, in our identity, in who we are, we've been born again, born of the Holy Spirit, into this union with Christ. And that's just a theological word that means this like divine, mystical marriage and connection with God. And we've been born into this affection, this love relationship with Jesus. We've been born into this passion and hunger and desire for God. And that trumps everything else. That trumps every other desire that we, that should trump everything in you. And so now in the world, there are millions of people of thousands of colors who have been born into this love. And that starts to trump everything else.
And in the one new man, because we've been born into this deep affection for Jesus, we now come to a common ethic. Because the ethic of all people groups, whether you're black, white, yellow, purple, your ethic now revolves around the person of Jesus. And this is what he means by in Christ, there's one new man. So now your, your ethic, your mor- we have a common morality, a common ethic, because we're all just circling and watching the life of Christ. And we're all allowing the life of Christ to be supreme over our cultural experiences. And so why we're allowed to, and I'm, I'm going to get there, we're perfectly allowed, according to Scripture, to maintain our cultural ethnic background our 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 ethic is is common our ethic is the life of jesus and so if you grew up in a cultural background that um abuses alcohol for instance that i that part of your culture you now throw away because it rubs against christ if you grew up in a cultural ethnic background where women are degraded and where the husband doesn't need to honor the wife, where the husband doesn't need to treat the wife with care, you now throw away that piece of your cultural ethnic background because it's in direct conflict with the person of Jesus. If you've grown up in a cultural ethnic background where your own personal success is the most important thing and throwing your coworker into the dirt in order to gain a promotion is the most important thing in your family's identity, that is now in direct conflict with the commands of Christ. So you throw that thing away. We, 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 we abandon elements of our cultural backdrop that, that are in conflict with the person of Jesus. We make those things bow their knee to the person of Jesus. So we live meditating on the life of this man, this most wonderful and beautiful man that ever walked the face of the earth. This most passionate and kind and gracious and holy and selfless man that ever walked the earth. He is now supreme. He is the most important person in history to us. And he's the most important person in the now to us. And so if we live in a way that conflicts with him, we bow our knee, we bend our knee. If my parents gossiped and I grew up in a culture of gossip and there are cultures where that's more of a normal thing, I say no to gossip because it's in conflict with that beauty and that majesty. So here in the one new man, we live with a common experience. We live with a common spiritual DNA and we live with a common ethic and the common ethic circles around the person of Jesus. So my point is simply this, if, if Christ becomes our all in all, if we put Jesus in the absolute center of everything we do and we start to test all of our lives against Jesus, we start to consider the way that we speak to people, the way that I spoke to that man, did that honor Jesus? And when I went to the store and I was, and I bumped into a homeless man, did the way that I speak to that homeless man honor Jesus? And my server, right? My server made mistakes. He was really late. Did, did I honor Christ? And if we allow Christ to be our central ethic, then unity will become Genuine or uh, unity um, becomes organic, comes common. It becomes normal that cultural, like like ethnic unity, racial unity, just falls into place when we're all circling around who Jesus is. And so Paul's point to the Gentiles is you do not have to lose your cultural ethnic background in order to find unity. You find unity in Jesus. Jesus is the place of unity. So now the body of Christ is this one organism that is completely diverse. The most diverse religion that's ever hit the face of the world is Christianity. And Christianity just keeps popping around the globe. Because Christianity is not committed to any one cultural backdrop. It's committed to the person of Jesus. 
And so the body of Christ is made up of all kinds of colors, all kinds of types, people with different dreams and different ambitions and people with different even things that are important to them. And so we've come to this body that is completely diverse. So coming to Christ, hear me, I'm going to yak at you for a minute. And so y'all forgive me if if I'm offensive at all today, but I'm trying to be faithful to what this is really implying towards us. So according to the text, in my opinion, and from my perspective, coming to Christ does not mean coming to a new style. Coming to Christ does not mean, in, in, in America's context today, coming to Christ does not mean dressing like, walking like, talking like an urban Caucasian person. And so our urban cities are young African-American men who come to Christ. There's no reason for them to dress like us, talk like us, look like an urban Caucasian person. There's no reason for um, a, a, a Gullah individual on this island to abandon their heritage and start dressing and walking and talking like a Caucasian person. There's no reason for that. It's actually a disgrace to what Christ died for. And so um, right now, which is really interesting, 10 years ago, if you said this, I would have laughed. There's a movement of like Christian hip hop artists, which again, 10 years ago would have been really funny because it was not good. Um, But today there is a movement of really talented um, hip hop artists who know this thing. I would put some of them against any pastor in America who know the word so well. And some are say, some are saying are doing more evangelism and better evangelism than much of the church. And they're doing it through not abandoning their social cultural identity, but in, but infusing Christ into their cultural identity. And so these young African, mostly African, some Hispanic men did not come to Christ and say, I need to put on a tie and dress like a, like a suburban Caucasian. They said, no, I'm going to bring Christ into my cultural expression. And now they're, they're doing better evangelism than most. And so the, the driving point here is that our goal is not to make people look like me. It's not. But again, if a young person comes to Christ and their dress is provocative, then that has to submit itself to Jesus. If someone comes to Christ and their speech is dishonoring, then that element of their cultural identity has to submit itself to Jesus. But, but, they, but they don't have to dress like us. Do you, do you guys, are you guys hearing me at all? Am I making sense? The intention, I'm, I'm just wrap this up really quickly. The intention of Christ in the body, the intention of Jesus in, in creating in himself one new man is that this new organism, because it's not completely committed to one cultural backdrop, we can actually become the most, again, uniquely diverse organism on the earth. And because we honor one another's cultural backdrops, we can actually like enjoy all the Hispanic food that we like. And we can enjoy all, do you hear what I'm saying? Like we honor other cultures, we celebrate other cultures. We support other cultures. We So when we have a new Hispanic family come in or a new Gola family, African-American family, whatever, Chinese family, we can actually get around them and say, teach us to cook your food. <laughs> like, do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, we should, like, when um, when someone comes in with a different dress or different garb, we can say, that is beautiful. Tell us, like, tell us more about that. Like, we can become so, so in love with different cultures, we are allowed to be. It's actually like like demanded of scripture that you learn to love culture. And so when people come in in different dress, we can say, that's really, can you make my daughter one of those? Like, that's awesome. Like, we love it. We, we are allowed to celebrate culture. And so my wife is Cajun. Boy, she's like South Louisiana Cajun, and she's so proud of it. And the girl can cook. I'm just telling you, she can cook. And so we, 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 
we, we are teaching our daughters about Southern Louisiana culture because it's so important to Haley. Um, and, and it's, con- you know, that culture is connected to the islands. Um, and so she, she makes crawfish etouffee and it's, I'm serious, it's wonderful. Like it, it is, it's godly. It is very godly. Um, <laughs> And, and, and she'll teach, she'll teach you how to make it. I'm telling you, you just come over and she will share it with you. Sometimes getting her hand on crawfish is kind of hard, but it's the same thing. Like some of our, um, so Haley's making empanadas right now and they're, they're good y'all. I'm still, I'm still trying to like get the weight off, but the empanadas are wonderful, but she's, but she's, she's talking to our Brazilian friends and they're sending in recipes. And so like we're, we'll, we'll make empanadas for our kids and we talk about Brazilian culture and our friends that love Jesus and this is how they grew up. And now, so now we can honor like love and celebrate all types of culture because our Unity is in, in Jesus. We don't, you don't have to conform to me. You don't, please don't. Right? Does that make sense? So our message to the Hispanic community, to the Goa community, any community, of the, any group, Asian group, Indian people that come on the island, our message is never come to our church and dress like us and sing like us. Our message is love Jesus with us. He's wonderful. And then teach us how you cook because that would be great. Do you, do you guys catch that nuance there? So important that we really grip that. So incredibly important that we grip that. And so, and then Paul, in his language, he goes on to say that we are being built into one new house. And so we are now one family of different backdrops, of different people groups. Um, we're one new family building into one new house. And this one new house revolves around inviting the presence of Jesus in. And like we are, the house wants Jesus. And then he slips, then he slips into temple imagery. And he says, we're, we're building one new temple. Like I think the King James translated this one new habitation, one new dwelling place for God. And so again, Ephesians, the, the temple of Diana is in Ephesus, huge temple in, in, in ancient Rome huge temple. And so Paul might be saying, look at that temple. No, we are, we are the real temple. We are the real, totally diverse, totally unified people who walk in honor with one another and who seek and, and, and passionately pursue the presence, the manifest presence of the Holy Ghost. And when we live in unity, we celebrate culture, yet culture is, is second. It, we, we make elements of culture submit to Jesus if, if the elements are dishonoring. But we celebrate culture, we live in unity, we pursue Jesus together, and now we're this one new structure in which the Holy Spirit just loves and fills and consumes. And we are now a new, living, moving, organic temple of God on the face of the earth. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.